Good morning, everyone. I'll just uh, check I'm turned on here. Good. My name is Peter, and uh, it's great to be here with you at this time. And uh, it's uh, wonderful just to be together, worshipping God, um, praising his name. And today, uh, we're going to be looking at a particular section in the Bible from the Hebrews passage today. Um, so we'll be looking at that in a moment. I'll just start with a little prayer myself. Just, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We bless you for the truth that it is to us. Help us, Lord, to understand and learn more from you in your wonderful, life-giving name. Amen. Okay. So we're looking at the um, chapter today. There's two very good readings today, and um, I, I selected the one from Hebrews that we look at but the Mark 1, of course, is wonderful and is related. Um, but we're looking today at Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verse 11 to 14. And um, the title is The Price is Paid. Um, and it's uh, short. These four short verses um, follow on from, from very challenging Old Testament themes of the book of Hebrews. I'm going to be looking a little bit at this during today um, and just see how it's um, going to stretch our minds. It's been quite mind-stretching just to do some prep for this. It's a really interesting area. Um, so um, I'm just going to read it again. These, there's only four verses. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Well, there's, uh, looking at this passage, I was thinking how best to, to break it down, and um, there are some big themes, such as new covenant and priestly duties and earthly tabernacles, and I always find it helpful when I'm looking at any passage, thinking about who on earth's talking here? What's it about? Who's it addressed to? And so I did you know, a little bit of research. And first of all, of course, who was the first question I looked at? Who was the writer? To whom was it written? Well, obviously, the clue in the title, Letter to the Hebrews, it was written to the Hebrews or the Jewish brothers. Or in the NRSV, it says uh, Jewish brothers and sisters. Addressed to Jewish followers of Jesus. So it was written to followers of Jesus. And it's fair to say that the commentators don't really know who the author was. I think I'm right in that, so you can stand, correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the letters that Paul wrote, he starts with, you know, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the letter of the Hebrews, to the Hebrews. But this one has got no name on it, so we don't actually know who wrote it. Some people say it was Barnabas. Some people say it might have been Apollos. We don't know exactly. But clearly someone who was linked to Paul. Uh, but we do know it is that it is part of the Holy Scriptures and the unity that is in God's inspired word. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirits, spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So this is the word of God. So just prayer. my prayer today is that God will have something for us to teach us that's going to help us to go forward. And of course, the other question which I asked was why? Why was it written? And one of the key reasons it was written was to challenge some of the Christians at that time who were going back to some of the legal rules and traditions that the Jewish um, authorities and the, the system had. And, uh, you know, the previous verses talk about the gifts and offerings. They're only a matter of food and drink and ceremonial washings. And, you know, there's so, there were so many rules and regulations. It reminds me um, of the other monotheistic faith, Islam. Uh, once, uh, when, when we were in Central Asia, a uh, friend invited me to the mosque. I'd invited him to the, the church. And so I thought, oh, I'd better reciprocate. So I went to the mosque. And he said, Peter, you've got to wash your hands like this going in. You've got to wash. You've got to wash your earlobes. Very particular ways of washing they have prior to going into the mosque. Needless to say, I went in, I sat at the back, I didn't join in all of the prayers they were doing, but it was so interesting to see that that route, which actually often is not admitted from the Jewish faith, on all these rules and regulations was there. So anyway, the writer writes to assure the readers that in fact, all these Jewish laws were no longer necessary because um, as followers of Jesus, we can trust in the work of Christ. That is our sufficiency. Now, to dig a little bit deeper today, um, I was going to look at four particular pictures from these verses. And the first one comes up, uh, all these are linked to the Old Testament. And you're thinking, what is this about? But the first one is from verse 11, when Christ came as high priest. Um, this picture of Christ as high priest is perhaps unusual. What does it mean? And again, there's this strong link with the Old Testament. At the time of its writings, of course, the Bible, they didn't have the New Testament. The Old Testament was the Bible that the church had. So it was very important. And um, the high priest, who was he? Well, first of all, he was appointed by God. He was set aside by God to oversee the tabernacle. That was the tent of meeting in the wilderness. But he was also to represent the people of Israel. And here, the title was used by the Hebrews writer to show that Christ was superior. Christ was superior to any previous high priest. Aaron was uh, bro Moses' brother, and he was, the, um, he was anointed as high priest. And at the time of the, the, the readers of this letter, you can also look up to an earlier uh, high priest which, who is mentioned, Melchizedek. I won't go into depth about Melchizedek, but if you look at Psalm, we mentioned Psalm 110, um, the reason why he was mentioned is because he was both king and high priest. And we think about Christ, Christ as king, Christ as high priest, two of the roles of Christ. And so this was one way that Jesus was superior to any other high priest. Um, and in Psalm 110, we can just have a quick look. It does say to, it says here, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And um, this text, you are a priest forever. Other priests 
were appointed. They lived on the earth, they died, but Christ was appointed by oath by God forever. He never dies. And to another important function of the high priest was addressing the problem of sin. So the high priest was involved in this. Once a year, they had this thing called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. What does that mean? It was a huge festival, and even today in Judaism, it's a very, very big festival. Um, And it was commanded by God to completely cover and pay the penalty for all the sins of the people of Israel. Um, And God said of it, it is most holy. So it was quite serious. He was very concerned about the sin of the people. And on that day, it tells us in Hebrews 9, 7, that only the high priest entered the room, and that was the Holy of Holies, only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and the sins of the people that had been committed in ignorance. Now, Hebrews 8 tells us also that this coming high priest would be the author of a new covenant, a new promised agreement. And it says in 8.13 that it would, be, it would make the old covenant obsolete. Now, true to say, the law is holy and good, but it was not able to deal with the sins of the people. Um, the old covenant included the Ten Commandments issued to Moses at Mount Sinai on the tablets of stone. It was key. But it came with all these additional laws and regulations. What on earth was all this law about? It was designed to deal with the people's sinfulness. God is holy. God had said to the people of Israel, he would bless them if you obey me fully and keep my commandments. But we know that the Israelites crossing the desert, those 40 years failed him again and again and again. But God spoke through Jeremiah. He said, I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Speaking of this new covenant. This was a promise looking forward from the Old Testament prophets to the time of Christ to fulfill the covenant with Abraham. What did God say to Abraham? I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all nations. Remember Abraham looked up to the sky and God said, look, count the stars. That is how many descendants you will have. And it was through Abraham that God was going to bring blessing to all the nations of the world. So Hebrews tells us that Jesus was indeed a great high priest. He became the mediator between us and God. And he still today intercedes for us. Romans 8.15 says that he is at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for us. Isn't that incredible that Jesus is interceding for us? Jesus, the sinless Son of God, unique, full of compassion for us in our struggles in our life, in our struggles with sin, Jesus intercedes for us. So that was the first picture. The second one was the tabernacle. Well, you know, in Hebrew, I I heard the word was mishkan. It means to dwell, rest, or to live in. Simply put, it means tent. So this was the... um, the tent that the Jewish people used during the 40 years in the desert. Our text tells us Jesus went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Now the tabernacle, this portable earthly dwelling place, as someone called it, the dwelling place of Yahweh, the God of Israel, was at the centre of the worship of the Old Testament. 
While the people of Israel were journeying those years in the desert, they left Egypt on their way to the promised land. But the ta- in very interesting detail that one commentator mentioned, if you look at the um, creation account in Genesis, it takes up two chapters of the Bible. But the tabernacle takes up 50 chapters. <laughs> Incredible. 50 chapters. So, although we think, what on earth, how does that relate to us today? Actually, it is important. Every part was designed to bring God's people closer to himself. It had curtains of finely twisted linen with blue, purple, and scarlet, with cherubim worked into them by a skilled craftsman. There was the altar of burnt offering overlaid with bronze inside the holy place. The priests had to keep the seven lights of the seven-branched lampstand burning evening till morning. They put special incense. They had uh, the table of the, the uh, sorry, they had the table of the bread of the presence, the bread of the presence, a perpetual bread offering to God. Um, and they also had the altar of incense. There the priests burnt fragrant spices, gum, resin, frank, pure frankincense. But through the second curtain lay the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was the place where God met with Moses. The Holy, Holy of Holies, it had in the center uh, this Ark of the Covenant. And it had a gold-covered chest. And it had a hammered slab of pure gold as its cover, which was called the atonement cover. It was there that between these two angelic creatures, you can't really see it very well in the picture there, these two angels with their wings outstretched, um, that God told Moses, I will meet with you and give you all the commandments for the Israelites. Only one person, as I said, was allowed into the Holy of Holies, and that person was the high priest once a year. And why did he go there? To make the atonement for the sins of the people. It was a, a payment for the wrong, for sin, atonement. These sacrifices had to be repeated every year and the high priest went in there with the blood from the sacrifices and he sprinkled them on the atonement cover. So it must have been splattered with blood. And he never entered without the blood of sacrifice. So Jesus, though it tells us as high priest, went through a greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. One commentator puts it, even though we're here on earth, we are not fit to stand before God and plead our case. But Christ is there in our stead as the one who died as a better sacrifice. The greater and perfect tabernacle, I think, means the presence of God in heaven through Christ's sacrifice at Calvary. Now, the center of worship, we know, moved later from the temple in Jerusalem And after Joshua had led the people across the Jordan, the temple was built by David's son Solomon. The kingdom of Israel was established. And that system of sacrifice continued until AD 70. Um, Okay, so that's, yeah. And when the temple was destroyed by the Romans. Now the next picture I have here is the the picture three, sacrifice. The idea of sacrifice was key to the means of the Jewish people dealing with sin. And it reflected, it was reflecting the roles of the priests, the design of the tabernacle, the bronze altar of sacrifice was located inside the courtyard of the tabernacle, in front of the tent. 
Um, and the altar of offerings had a grate underneath to remove all the ash from the burnt sacrifice. It was a bit like a giant barbecue. Um, uh, sorry to, not to demean it. But, and it had four horns on each corner on which the priests would put blood of the sacrifices, as said on that one day of atonement, um, when the, holy pri- the high priest sprinkled the sacrificed animal blood on the ark. The point of the system was using animals without defect. It was to make peace with or to pacify. In other words, to conciliate. I was looking up these words. Some, of the, some very difficult theological words. Propitiation, very hard word to say. Some of the theologians here will know that word better than me. But really important key roles to pacify God, to make up and to atone for the sins of the people. Now, Peterson's message says it more clearly as it outlines this work and role of these three images, high priest, tabernacle, and sacrifice. And he starts with the word but. He describes in this passage all these things, high priest, tabernacle, sacrifice. What on earth did it mean? And this is what Peterson's translation says. But when the Messiah arrived, the high priest of the superior things of this new covenant, he bypassed the old tent and its trappings in this created world, and he went straight into heaven's tent, the true holy place, once and for all. He bypassed the sacrifices consisting of goat and calf blood, instead using his own blood as the price he set us free once and for all. So this leads us to the fourth picture. Oh, that's the Wailing Wall, which is... um, the, the foundation, the, original, the foundation of the original temple in Jerusalem as the Jews who are not messianic await their own Messiah. But we know that the final picture today is the cross because Christ's sacrifice at Calvary ended any need for high priest, ended any need for tabernacle or animal sacrifice for our sins. And again, as the message version says, If the animal blood and other rituals of purification were effective in cleaning up certain matters of our religion and behavior, how much more the blood of Jesus cleanses our lives inside and out. Through the Spirit, Christ offered himself as an unblemished, a perfect sacrifice, freeing us from all those dead-end efforts to make us respectable so that we can live all out for God. The forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus means we can come to God any time. No repeated sacrifices are necessary. Jesus' death, the once and for all event. This emphasis on atonement for sin carries with it the assumption that people recognize sin in their lives. John 1.8 from the Anglican liturgy says, um, there is no difference between Jews or Greeks or any of us that matter. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. God's standard is perfect. And like the archer firing arrows into a target, the bullseye is the perfection. I think in, in darts, isn't the inner bullseye, is that worth 50 marks? Any of you guys dance? Pretty hard to get it right into the middle, isn't it? That is perfection, to get it right into the 50 mark scorer. And we fall short of perfection. We all fall short. And so uh, this tells us here that um, God, Christ knows that something 
uh, we, you know, we all fall short. And something I discovered personally, when I was 21 years old, many years ago, I may have shared this story before, I was sick in bed for a month with hepatitis, and beside the bed was the Bible. Someone said, why don't you read Luke? So I picked up Luke's Gospel, and I began to read Luke's Gospel. And I, you know, I had a Bible, I'd been to a school, we had assembly every, you know, chapel every day type thing. And I'd heard the story, but for the first time, it hit me deep down, because it read about the story of Jesus. It read, and it was like the first time I ever heard him, his miracles, his life, his love for the loveless. But then I was shocked, this incredible man, as I began to feel the power, the love, the, 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 almost the fire of the, of, of the Bible in my heart, um, that he suffered such a terrible, shocking betrayal, humiliation, this kangaroo courtroom, he was thrashed and crucified. And when I got to Luke 23:39, I just, I wept really, I have to be honest. And it said here, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sacrifice, we are punished justly for what we have done, what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Christ is perfect. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And it was so powerful for me. And um, this, I just sensed the amazing, the grace of the gospel, the love of Christ overwhelmed me. And the Mark reading we read earlier today, we, you know, we heard about that, the love of Christ. And I was overwhelmed by an overflowing love. And, uh, you know, if this is the first time for you to hear this, then please talk to one of us at the end of the service. What was this you were talking about? Maybe God is speaking you to, to you today. Um, but also, um, you know, if we have been Christians for a while, we might say, yes, we know that. We've heard that. Um, yes, and of course, sometimes it's tempting to say Christ did the tough that we don't need to do all these sacrifices anymore. The price has been paid, but as we persevere in our Christian lives, um, I just wonder uh, if God is calling us, what God might be calling us to next. Um, you know, just thinking about those two uh, guys, Peter and Andrew, on the shores of Galilee, and Christ said, come follow me. And, uh, you know, Christ is calling us to follow him. So let us be ready to obey him. Let us be ready to listen to him. Let us think what Christ has done on the cross. And let us um, think for ourselves, you know, do we, is life maybe too comfortable? I don't know. Um, I was talking to a friend recently, he said his Christian life, one of the things is that little bit of danger, the danger. Sometimes we need to have a bit of courage to face the danger as Christians, and sometimes we can be a little bit too comfortable. So if that might be you, then uh, thinking of that, that chapter in, 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 in Joshua, be bold and courageous. So there's that excitement in the Christian life that we can pray for, but there's also that element of danger. So what is God calling us to? Let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the unbelievable journey you went through on this earth, 
and the suffering you experienced on the cross. And we know that you are the resurrected Christ, that you have defeated sin, you have defeated death. And we just pray, Lord God, show us, Lord, how we can um, be courageous in following you at this time, particularly as a church we face with the interregnum. And we just ask uh, for your help in this, in your wonderful name. Amen.